0: Welcome to Saturday Night at the Movies, the podcast that celebrates current classic and cult films. I'm Steve Rubin, our producer's Ben Shrewsbury and we're on the Lock 22 network. Here it's always Saturday night. And I'm pleased to welcome our guest tonight, author, film historian, documentarian, producer, screenwriter, and soon a novelist, Bruce Civile, whose book on the Matt Helm spy movies entitled booze bullets and broads is out and uh, happy to have you on the show bill uh B- bill bruce welcome happy to be here so so thanks for inviting me on oh it's about time i had you on the show because we have so many similar interests so i i do want to uh, make a sad note today we heard that tony dow passed away uh, a wonderful actor and director um those of us who grew up in the 1950s, remember Leave it to Beaver as almost scripture. Uh, it was just the show to watch. It's hard It's hard to picture a show like Leave it to Beaver today, but back in the late 50s and early 1960s, um, Leave it to Beaver was just a fun show, and Tony Dow was the opposite of all those bad boy teenagers that were running around at the time. The, Rebel Without a Cause guys. I mean, he was like the, the nicest teenager you could ever meet in your life and probably still is the nicest teenager you can meet uh, in your life. Uh, Bruce, were you a fan of the show?
1: Yeah, it came on uh, when I was uh, growing up. I'd come home from school and it was on every day. So my my brother and mom and I watched it. And I did have occasion about Five or six years ago, I went to um, a remembrance of Noel Neal and um, Jack Larson from the old Superman series. And Tony Dell was there at that. So, you know, I got to see him there and speak to him briefly. And he just seemed like a really genuine, down-to-earth,
0: nice guy. Absolutely. About four years ago, I approached him as a potential director, and he liked the idea of doing a Star Wars fan movie we call Lion King's. It's about a group of super fans who line up in front of the Chinese theater four days before the new Star Wars movie, and they get in kind of a revenge of the nerds competition with another group that wants to be first in line, because the people in first in line will win parts in the next Star Wars movie. So it creates somewhat of a feeding frenzy. And I thought, uh, uh, actually, Tony actually thought the idea was very very fun, and we did some scouting with him as we tried to raise money. We weren't successful at that time, although we're still at it, but he was a charming man and and certainly an icon and we'll miss him. Um, We're losing too many of the great characters of our growing up. I mean, just the other day, we lost Paul Servino and David Warner. Uh, I, I had a chance to work with both of them and just true gentlemen. Mm-hmm. Now, being, being a movie fan, uh, I always ask this question because I'm curious about when you were growing up. Um, did you have a special movie theater you went to where you were growing up? Was that, was that part of your world? I grew up uh, way out in the country in North Alabama.
1: So going to a movie was a bit of a chore, you know, and um, uh, we would have to drive like 20 miles, you know, to go to either Huntsville, Alabama or Fayetteville, Tennessee. Because we lived on the Alabama-Tennessee state line, so most of what I saw growing up was on television. And as I got older, I particularly liked there was a PBS station out of Nashville that on Saturday nights would show all the the great old classic films. So, so that plus the CBS late movie and you know things like that—that's where I got my movie education.
0: Were, you, were your parents movie fans? Would they take that trek 20 miles or just as a whole family, you didn't go much?
1: We didn't go very much. I mean, uh, my mom did take me to see Dino De Laurentius' King Kong when it came out. Oh, wow. <laughs> the, only, the only two movies I remember seeing with my mom and dad were Walking Tall at the drive-in, which is appropriate, and uh, Coal Miner's Daughter. So that that was it. Those are the only two I saw in the theater with them. Although when I was very young, my mom was an Elvis fan and there was uh, another friend of hers that uh, would kind of get the families together and go see Elvis movies once in a while. Usually again at drive-ins.
0: Now You've done so much as a documentarian and a film historian. Uh, Did you study film in school?
1: Well, I um, was always a big fan of movies when I was... 13 years old, I got a Super 8 movie camera. I used to read Famous Monsters of Filmland. As I got a little older, I started buying any kind of book that had that was about old films, you know, Uh, discovered the Leonard Malton books when I was in my probably like 13 14 years old. So, um, you know, I was always really interested in film and knew by the time I got to high school that that's the career path I wanted to head on. So I applied to uh, USC, got in, went, did my four years there, and then uh, got out and promptly became a security guard at a condominium in, in Hollywood. <laughs> so, but a little while after that, I started doing special effects work and, um, and you know, met, uh, well, you know, it seemed like pretty much all the jobs I got for the next 20 or 30 years were through people that I had met at USC film school. You know, so when I uh, was teaching for a while in Chicago, I would tell my students to see who the movers and shakers were in their class and be their best friends, because that's where most of their work was going to be coming from.
0: So who were some of the movers and shakers in your class?
1: Most of my jobs that I've had over the years came through John Cork. I got a few through Scott McIsaac. Uh, John wrote The Long Walk Home. Um, Scott's just been a friend since we were at USC. We were, we had a little enclave there at USC who were all James Bond fans. You know, It was uh, me and Scott, uh, John Court, Tom Windler. Um, there was another friend there, Greg Dorier, who left after a couple of years to go back to school in New York. Greg's now an editor who uh, was one of the editors on uh, the most recent Star Trek film. He was an editor on the Peacemaker series. He's He's done several of the Fast and Furious movies. So he's doing really well. And the guys I wish I had uh, hung out with more were uh, Scott Alexander and Larry Karaszewski who were at USC when I was there.
0: Two, and they, two really great screenwriters.
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, great screenwriters and producers, you know, they've really uh, got a little empire going now. And I, I think it's just wonderful what they've been able to do
0: from, from the time. Well, they the, the, docu- the documentary work you did with John Cork on the Bond movies is exemplary. Uh, definitely a lot of fun. Uh, You were working in the official arena, whereas I was always the maverick writing my books completely on my own, Uh, but uh, I loved working with you guys when you hired me to do the commentary on The Great Escape.
1: Well, you were such a natural for that because you've got such an affinity for the old war films, you know, so it just seemed like a, a, a great fit and I really appreciate the job you did on that.
0: Well, I, I woke up on uh, I think it was uh, January second, two thousand four, and somebody called me up and said, uh, "What, uh, Steve? You, what do you have in common with Julie Andrews, George Lucas, Peter Jackson, and Matt Groning? And I said, "What is that? You've been nominated for best classic commentary," <laughs> oh. and I, I nearly fell out of my chair. <laughs> it was the, the there was an uh, an organization at that time called the DVD Exclusive Academy. <clears throat> and right. they gave out awards every year, and I, I and I guess you guys were nominated also for best uh, for best DVD uh, classic release.
1: <clears throat> well, as far as I know, we didn't win. I certainly don't have a trophy sitting here, unless, unless John received it. But
0: I think I, I think the uh, Peter Jackson, uh, that's yeah, that was it. His Lord of the Rings project, I think, swept those awards. Uh, that ingrate but I
1: got to sit at at the awards banquet sit at a table next to Barbara Bain so that made up for not winning an award
0: ah excellent excellent very very good well um when you told me the other day that you had a book on the Matt Helm movies I was just so excited because um and the book is called Booze Bullets and Broads great title um I remember you know most people who grew up in the 60s remember the Bond movies and the kind of explosion of spy related films and television. I mean, it just seems you couldn't go two minutes without seeing something related to Bond. And um, I have to tell you, and we can get into this, uh, that I read the the Donald Hamilton books voraciously because I'd heard good things about them and they were truly terrific. Uh, you're going to have to explain to me how a terrific book series featuring an American James Bond-type character turns into <laughs> uh, a Dean Martin semi-comic farcical series. And um, I, I say that with a strong wink-wink uh, because wink I enjoyed them, but it just seemed uh, a lot different than what they originally um why would i originally planned i thought they would be like tell tell us what you learned in your research well first let me give you a
1: little background on the book uh, i did that uh while i was living in chicago about a dozen years ago i think i wrote it nine years ago is when i first first did it and that's one that like you i was just going to be a maverick and do it on my own so i i did it strictly as an ebook on amazon kindle figuring that uh you know there, there couldn't be that many people who really liked Matt Helm movies, but I enjoyed them and I love doing research on films and I started researching the Matt Helm movies and thought okay well an e-book seems like a good idea. Because uh, you know it doesn't really cost anything to upload something to Amazon and then you know the, the five or 10 other people besides me who are into it might buy it. I'm happy to say that uh, over the years it's sold more than five or 10 copies. And uh, I've just uh, recently refreshed it and, and read back through it, corrected some errors that were in there. Uh, had some people who were uh, spy fans who downloaded the book and and uh, read it and, and sent me emails to uh, messages through Facebook saying, "Hey, you got this wrong or you misspelled this name." So I uh, mentioned all of them in my my acknowledgments now, because it was uh, you know it was almost like. Um, you know crowdsourcing a uh, your, your book editing <laughs> you know <laughs> but that's the other good thing about the ebook you can uh you know make the changes and then load it back up again so uh, however there will be a print book coming here in the, uh, probably in the next month or so i'm just uh, getting that set up now
0: oh that's fabulous are you getting any cooperation from the studio no i i
1: haven't approached them, and uh, so i probably will not have very much in a way of uh, illustrations, aside just from what uh, Fair Use will allow.
0: Right, right. Uh, and, I,
1: and, yeah, and sad to say at this point that I don't think I'm going to, uh, that, that most of the people involved with in those films have passed on now too, so. So well, yeah. I have to
0: mention that I'm certainly aware of uh, Irving Allen, um, not Irwin Allen, which I'm sure he's often confused with, but. Irving Allen uh, was originally Albert R. Broccoli's producing partner in England for all those 1950s uh, adventure films that were shot with the ED subsidy, which was a lot of money that um, was provided to filmmakers over there as a subsidy to shoot in England. And I'll never forget Albert Broccoli telling me in his office that day in 1977, when I interviewed him, that uh, when he showed the, Bond, the James Bond novels to his partner Irving Allen, Irving Allen did not have the right reaction to the books. He just hated them. I think Cubby told me that uh, he didn't even think they were television material, which uh, seems very uh, kind of myopic for Irving Allen. Yet, it's, uh it's actually worse than that. The story is worse than that. Um, Because
1: this this is how you get uh, the Matt Helm series to begin with. Because, yeah, they were partners in Warwick Films, uh, making these films out of England, although um, Alan, I think, was Canadian, and Cubby was born in New York. Uh, But they were these two American producers, or North American producers over in the UK, making these films, realizing that as long as they used a mostly British crew and put an American star in it, like Victor Mature or Alan Ladd, they could uh, exploit the films in both the UK and America, but also, as you said, get access to all those those um, tax uh, bonuses there to help help finance it. But yeah, Cubby had gotten interested in doing the uh, James Bond novels, but this was the late 1950s, around 58, 59. Around that time, his wife Nedra in, in back in New York had cancer, and she was becoming very ill, and it was obvious she wasn't going to last much longer so cubby had set up a lunch meeting with ian fleming fleming's agent but he couldn't go because he needed to go to new york and be with his wife so he asked irving allen to go in his stead and that was the wrong guy to send to that meeting because irving allen went to the meeting and told ian fleming he didn't think his books were even tv quality (laughs) so so that kind of killed the deal and that was the beginning of the end of the Broccoli Allen partnership. But even after the partnership ended, they continued to share an office with a partner's desk, facing each other on opposite sides of this big wide desk. So over the next three or four years, as Cubby starts producing the James Bond films, and Irving Allen's off doing things like The Vikings, his films are kind of struggling, you know, just just kind of limping along while Cubby is suddenly, you know, making money hand over fist with the Spy series. So he thinks, gee, maybe I should get a spy series. And he's in the airport, he's looking at the books on one of these little spinner racks and sees the Matt Helm paperbacks and he picks up the silencers, reads it on the plane, I think flying back to the US and thought, all right, this will do. So he contacts Donald Hamilton. And initially the idea was to do a more serious type of film. And um, they were going out to all kinds of actors like Tony Curtis and, and uh, gosh, I forget all the others they were looking at now. Donald Hamilton said his preferred choice would have been Richard Boone, which is kind of interesting. Um, but ultimately, uh, he just wasn't getting a lot of interest from anyone until he got the idea of maybe camping it up a little bit, like uh, they were starting to do with the Armand Man Flint movies that were just ending production at that time. So uh, they got a comedy writer to beat the script up, and uh, he found out you know, Dean Martin was looking for a project to do and he took it to Dean Martin and Dean Martin kind of liked the idea of playing a, a, a super spy. So he signed on with the proviso that it would be produced with his company in partnership with Irving Allen. So Irving Allen's company I think was Meadway, Dean Martin's was Claude and that's why they are Meadway Claude Productions. What that meant is that aside from his salary for acting in the films, Martin also had profit participation, so when The Silencers came out, which is the first one, he raked in much more money for that than Sean Connery did for playing James Bond in Thunderball. and Thunderball.
0: That, that, I find that absolutely amazing.
1: Yeah, and that is part of the reason, I think, why Sean Connery then went back to Broccoli and Saltzman and asked to be made a partner in the Bond enterprise, and they more or less, left him out of the office, you know, saying, Come on, you were an unknown actor when we found you. And, you know, people don't come to see you, they come to see James Bond. We can cast anyone. And, uh, you know, so they were just getting started on You Only the Twice. <laughs> Before it starts rolling, Connery says, Well, this will be my last one, and I'm out. And we know, we all know what happened there. So,
0: what what studio embraced the Hell movies?
1: Columbia, which had released all the Warwick films that Alan had made
0: with Cuppy Broccoli. He had a long partnership with them, So, uh, so Alan went to, was Mike Frankovich running the studio at that time? Um, yes, he was. And, um, and interestingly, they had turned down the James Bond series. Cause I know Cubby and Harry Saltzman went there first with Bond. Right. And,
1: and they were turned down. So,
0: so they went over to see um,
1: United Artists. And, uh,
0: you know, it's funny because um, sometimes you, you have a tendency to dismiss the Helm movies as just spoofs that, you know, they they didn't measure up to the Bond films. But if you think about it, and I'm not sure, but if they had done Helm seriously back in those days, I'm not sure it would have done as well, because I guess the first Helm movies did pretty well, didn't they?
1: Yeah, the first couple did very well, certainly, uh, you know, made their budget back and then some. uh, And they were filmed, of course, on a much lesser budget than any of the Bond films were being made for at that time. Right. I mean, probably, you know, the silencers budget was probably what the volcano when you, you only look twice cost, you know. So.
0: <laughs> well, I, I remember them as wall-to-wall gorgeous women. I just remember that you, you didn't go three minutes in that movie before you'd see uh, a very tall and striking statuesque woman come out, barely clothed. Uh, And uh, certainly, if you look at the castings of these movies, uh, they're just the most gorgeous women in the world, which is certainly not a problem. Um, And I think that having seen the Bond movies by then and seen all the spy stuff going on, I think we kind of appreciate the spoofs. I was also a fan of the R Man Flint movies, which were contemporaries as well. I guess there was enough room in the marketplace for all these franchises at the time uh, I just kind of wish, as I'm sure you do, that they had been treated a little more seriously because the books were pretty intense. They, I thought they were very good.
1: Yeah, the books are an entirely different animal. They're pretty, they're they're almost more like hard-boiled detective thrillers. You know, the character's not so much a spy as he is more of a, I mean, some of the plot sees, villain sees stopping or doing kind of fantastic things. But the writing of them is very kind of Raymond Chandler. It's very kind of two-fisted, manly man stuff, you know. Uh, and some of it, I must say, hasn't has not dated well, just as with the films, you know, especially uh, post Me Too. It's very hard to sit down and watch those Matt Helen movies.
0: <laughs> well, it's funny. I guess uh, you probably, like me, were kind of surprised in watching the latest Quentin Tarantino movie because uh, uh, the wrecking, wrecking Crew has has quite a bit of presence in the movie. Uh, yes,
1: because apparently that's what uh, Sharon Tate was doing around the time of the Manson murders. It was her right. final film, but it was almost her last one. Um, it was just shortly after the film was released that uh, the murders happened. And I think that had an impact on why part of the reason, along with fading box office, it just kind of demoralized uh, some of the, the key creatives like Dean Martin. So they just didn't have the guts oh. to continue on, although they had planned to do a film called the ravagers but that never came to be yeah you know. uh,
0: yeah i was reading about that today on imdb in their trivia section that dean martin was so shocked by sharon's death that it just soured him on the whole series um but you're right they had become less and less successful uh but the did the series did spawn i mean the movie spawned a short-lived tv series right
1: it did. But the, again, the TV series is also its own animal, which is not like the, the, the movies, but also not very much like the original novels. It's, it's basically Mannix, except they're calling the character Matt Helm.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, let me ask you this. Do you think there's still room in the world for a real uh, Matt Helm series? Some
1: people do. I believe George Clooney is still in... Uh, you know, involved in uh, trying to get one launched, and uh, for about the past ten years, the name that keeps being associated with it is Bradley Cooper, and I think he, from what I can tell, even a couple of years ago, he was still kind of making some noises that he'd like to, to do a more serious, straightforward Matt Helm movie, and I think he'd be a great choice for the role, quite honestly. But
0: but uh, now, there are there are there are four films: The Silencers, uh, Murderer's Row the Ambushers, and wrecking, the Wrecking Crew. Uh, do you have a favorite of the four?
1: You know, I think for me, maybe the Silencers is is the one that's least tongue-in-cheek and still, you know, over the top. And the, the funny thing about it, and you see it particularly with the uh, trailers for Murderer's Row, when you watch them, you see that these were tailored so much for Dean Martin that it, that you're not watching a a, um, film version of a Matt Helm story, you're watching Dean Martin play spy. And in the trailer to Murderer's Row, they have a title that comes up on the screen at the end of the trailer that says, See Dean Martin Save the World. That, in a nutshell, is what the Matt Helm movies are.
0: (laughs) And of course, Dean Martin is never far from his proverbial martini or whatever he's drinking those days. I have to say, I have to share with you a funny... uh, funny moment. Uh, I was a game show writer for the Joker's Wild back in the in the 70s. And uh, I had a category called spy movies that I wrote. And one of the key questions was, uh, what was uh, um, what was the name of Matt Helm's secretary? Uh, However, I forgot to phonetically spell the name. So when Jack Berry announced the name, he said, Lovey Kravisite oh good lord <laughs> as opposed to lovey craves it <laughs> oh yeah that, that's that's very different <laughs> <laughs>
1: beverly <laughs> adams right right yeah who um i think uh was only in the first three and uh, doing the publicity tour for the third one she met a she met vidal sassoon i think and uh, married him
0: oh very good i know that james gregory was the boss in the first three. And then he didn't come back for the fourth one either. I believe he was making a Western and it was unavailable. I wonder if it was the Sons of Katie Elder. Uh, it it Could have been. Yeah. Could have been. Um, but Martin, uh, you know, I guess uh, it was just the, the timing was right. Alan needed somebody with some profile. Uh, it, it was spoof. It was spoof country. It wasn't serious. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think Dean Martin would have ever come within twenty miles of that role if it wasn't comic spoof.
1: Yeah, I mean, he uh, I think had a little bit of an inferiority complex about his abilities as a dramatic actor. Although I think he's really good in Rio Bravo and Airport. You know, I enjoy him in both of those, and I I think when when he needed to, he could really uh, you know give a great performance. Oh yeah. But I think I think too at that at that point in his career. Uh, the series began just before his nbc series started his variety show which ran throughout the making of the Hell movies and on into the 1970s and i think you know martin at that point had made enough money from all his various ventures that he just uh, didn't really feel the need to put a lot of effort into his work anymore <laughs> so so with his tv show they they would send him um cassette tapes of uh, his lines that he would listen to in the car as he's driving around through the week and shoot him on a Sunday afternoon. He'd run in and basically, you know, one take and it's done. And if he flubbed it, that was part of the show. He had to take that that sort of philosophy with his movies. He liked to do one take and, you know, it was, if it close was good enough for him.
0: Well, I read that uh, that Bruce Lee, was assigned for fight choreography on the last film, The Wrecking Crew, and tried to give uh, Dean some martial arts instructions and Dean wanted nothing to do with it.
1: Yeah, I mean, Dean was an ex-boxer, so he was pretty athletic in his youth, but uh, yeah, that was probably too much physical effort for him. Plus, you know, he's got stunt men, which you can definitely tell when you watch the movies. (laughs) There is, you know, the other person that that, uh, pops up in The Wrecking Crew though is Chuck Norris.
0: Yeah, who, who as, has, as essentially an extra, right?
1: More or less, he has one line. May I, Mr. Helm, you know, to, to take Helm's <laughs> gun? And about uh, two minutes later, they're in a fight scene. You know, where, where you know Matt Helm's fighting all these guys there in, in the uh, bar setting, and one of them he knocks down is Ch- Chuck Norris does a roundhouse kick o- way over his head, because <laughs> in the first take he'd kind of misjudged it and hit Dean Martin's shoulder, and Martin went flying across the set. So in the next take, he went way over Dean's head, which is the one in the film,
0: you know. Oh, that's but, funny.
1: But Matt Helm ends up uh, getting the best of him.
0: Bruce, when you were doing your research, was anybody still around that could help you?
1: There probably was, but at the time I was doing the book, I was in Chicago and I you know, certainly could have done the um, interviews over the phone, but Again, I didn't expect that there would be very many people who would be interested in this. <laughs> I'm glad to say I misjudged that so I basically relied on um you know press books and uh, newspapers and you know uh interviews that uh, people had given in uh, other other books you know there were a couple sure. of books on sure. Dean martin where the the authors interviewed people about the Matt hill movies so
0: no, that that's definitely. Uh, thank God for the internet these days; it makes uh, research a lot easier. Oh my
1: God, I still remember going to going to libraries and getting the microfiche. You know, I mean, first having to get the index to find the articles, and then finding the microfiche, and then going through you know, trying to find these these grainy, hard to read articles. <laughs> so, are you, are down you the internet?
0: Are, I, I know you mentioned that you're doing this novel about. Uh, Um, Wyatt Earp how did you choose Wyatt Earp as a novel idea
1: that's a little bit of a long story too but it goes back to um, I moved back to LA in 2017 and uh, one of my good friends uh, from USC days is Courtney Joyner who's uh, written some western novels and was you know writer producer director did uh, several horror films back in the 80s and 90s but um, Courtney was appearing at a the annual Western show out in uh, S- uh, Santa Clarita up at the um, William S. Hart Park. So um, I'd already been thinking about doing a, a script set in the early days of Hollywood, silent era, and maybe touching on the death of Thomas Hence, you know, the, who was supposedly killed on a yacht by William S. Hart, although that story's total bunk. Um, but anyway, I was up at the, the Hart Museum looking at some exhibits there and they had a thing mentioning that um, Hart's movies initially were made for Thomas Sense. And I thought, ah, okay, suddenly it hit me, do kind of, uh, you know, William S. Hart helped solve the the murder of Thomas Sense. And I thought, have um, Hart teaming up with Wyatt Earp because I knew Wyatt Earp had been a consultant on cowboy movies back in the Mm. silent days. Uh, He lived out the, the end of his life here in Los Angeles and um, he was at his funeral. Two of the pallbearers were Tom Mix and William S. Hart.
0: Oh, how crazy is that? I yeah. do remember the idea of this kind of uh, collaboration a little bit, although I never saw the movie. There was a Bruce Willis movie called Sunset, right? Sunset,
1: yeah. Blake, Blake Edwards movie
0: with uh, Bruce Willis and... Uh,
1: James Garner. James Garner, thank you. Yeah. which. Uh, I, I loved the idea of it. I didn't like the execution very much. <laughs> you know, I don't think it did very well at the box office either. But initially, I
0: that, I was, that, that's a polite way of saying it bombed. <laughs> yeah, I
1: was going to you know, initially do an idea that would have uh, you know Hart and um, and Earp investigating Ince's murder, and tie it into some uh, you know Chinese drug lords in Mexico, and have to go into Mexico and go on this revenge mission. And then I uh, was talking to Courtney a couple of Christmases ago and he mentioned that uh, Al Ruddy had finally sold Clan Eastwood on doing Cry Macho. So I thought, gee, what's that about? You know, and I looked up Cry Macho and it had uh, you know, an older guy and a younger guy going into Mexico and it sounded like the book was more of a revenge type story. And I thought, all right, that might be a little too close to what I'm trying to do here. So I totally rethought the idea and thought of doing something much smaller scale And it struck me, as I was doing all this, in this process, doing my research on Wyatt Earp, Wyatt Earp's final words were, suppose, suppose. So I had already decided that this whole adventure story I was going to write would be Wyatt Earp's dying dream. And then I just kind of, like I say, scaled it back and thought, you know, forget about having William S. Hart be an integral character in this and just stick with Wyatt Earp. And we begin with him dying in Los Angeles. He died of uremic poisoning, basically a bladder infection. Um, and after saying, suppose, suppose, fell into a coma and that was in the middle of the night and he was dead by the morning. So uh, I have a framing story that's uh, Wyatt on his deathbed and his biographer and his doctor and his wife, who was Jewish, Josephine, by his bedside. And um, while they're waiting there, we, we go into Wyatt's, dreams and and he dreams the ending that would be a little more befitting of someone who was called the lion of tombstone and was involved in the gunfight at the okay corral so in his dream he's he's still an older man but going back to vidal california where he and his wife had some mines and uh doing goes back to doing some mining there gets involved with a group of shady characters and ends up in a gunfight so it's a little more of a traditional story
0: Bruce, did the Earps have
1: any children? Um, Wyatt Earp did not. Um, There's some pretty good evidence that his first wife um, either died right after childbirth or was pregnant when she died. And uh, she died of uh, scarlet fever or something like that. Oh, okay. When he was very, he was only like, you know, in his early 20s when that happened. And he never married again. All his other women that he was with were He had kind of a shady life, to to put it mildly, Um, but he tended to take up with uh, women who were (laughs) ex-prostitutes, you know, until he met uh, Josephine, who was an actress, which in those days would have been considered just a step above being (laughs) a character.
0: Do you have a favorite actor over the years who you've seen play Wyatt Earp?
1: I think, hands down, Kurt Russell.
0: Wasn't he terrific?
1: I I admire what... um, Kevin Costner did in his movie Um, and uh, I think having read uh, several biographies of Wyatt Earp the Kevin Costner movie is very accurate in most of the details but it just for an entertaining Wyatt Earp movie I think Tombstone is is hands down the one to go to.
0: Just just wonderful all across the board Um, although I must tell you that I am a big fan of Burt Lancaster and Kirk Douglas in The Gunfight at the OK Corral. Uh, being a big John Sturges fan, I thought that was uh, also a terrific film.
1: That's a good one. And then James Garner in the sequel to that. The, um,
0: With so Jason Robards, yes.
1: They Day of the Gun or something like that?
0: Uh, Hour of the Gun. Hour of the Gun, thank you. Yeah, no, and definitely. prior
1: to that, I mean, Henry Fonda in uh, My Darling Clementine, he gives yes. a really good performance, so. No, absolutely. Incidentally, uh, supposedly John Ford uh, knew Wyatt Earp, or at least used to tell people that he knew Wyatt Earp, and whenever Wyatt's wife would uh, go out of town for a few days to visit family or go to a church meeting or something, that Wyatt would kind of get the guys together and drink and gamble and so on, and that Ford was part of that crowd. And John Wayne claims that when he was just starting out in movies, working as a prop boy on silent westerns, that uh, he met Wyatt Earp and patterned his cowboy portrayal after Wyatt Earp.
0: Oh, that's very interesting. Yeah. One thing that I definitely miss are Westerns. Uh, You know, we grew up around the same era. Westerns were very much a working genre. Although it's more of a modern Western, I'm enjoying this series on the Paramount Network called Yellowstone.
1: Yeah, I enjoyed Yellowstone, and I enjoyed 1883, which was the spin-off. So, um, yeah, I, th- I think, uh, I'm blanking on the name of the producer of that, who did... Um, Taylor, uh, Taylor Sheridan? Taylor Sheridan, yeah, who also did Hell or High Water. You know, I mean, he's definitely someone who has an affinity for Westerns and is doing them, and whether in modern guise or traditionally, does a great job of them. And I'm happy to say that. I think due to that and uh, Tom Hanks's uh, News of the World and a few others that have come out in recent years. There does seem to me to be a little bit of a resurgence now of Western films and I'm glad to see it because one of the great joys of, you know, when I'm working on a piece, working on a script or a book, I like to kind of watch a lot of other movies or listen to music that keeps me in that genre. Sure. So working on the Wyatt Earp book, uh, first as a screenplay and then the, the novel, I watched a lot of old Westerns, revisited a lot of classics, saw a bunch I hadn't seen before and listen to a lot of Ennio Morricone you know, spaghetti Western music. So <laughs> it, was, it was great, it's fantastic. Those films really hold up well.
0: Oh yeah, I recently watched for the first time all the way through, I just sat down, I'm gonna finally watch Once Upon a Time in the West. And I've really enjoyed that movie. I don't know why I kind of dismissed it for many years as just another Western, but that uh, seeing Henry Fonda as this villain was just so startling to me.
1: Yeah, the storyline of it, I think, is, is pretty good. Uh, although the Jason Robards character and all the stuff with the train almost seems like just padding it out. But <laughs> but uh, Charles Bronson's, you know, revenge mission in that film is, is pretty compelling. It's, Bronson's it's, a great yeah. presence in it. And I think it is next to The Searchers, I think those two are the most beautifully, lovingly crafted filmed mm-hmm. Westerns ever.
0: I, I cannot disagree with that, although the other Western I would throw in the mix is a personal favorite, which is um, uh, which is uh, the Professionals.
1: Yeah, that's a good one, too. I mean, there, there are so many good ones, and I think um, I, I, I just recently uh, wanted to watch the offer, so I subscribed to Paramount Plus, and I'm glad to say they have a very deep collection of classic Westerns on their uh, streaming service, so I would recommend them if you're a Western fan and stars also those two have a lot of westerns but uh, you know some a couple that i wasn't as familiar with because i grew up watching john wayne movies those sort of classic things and and the b westerns but um for my birthday a couple of years ago courtney gave me a set of dvds of columbia westerns and apparently back in the 40s there was a whole series of westerns starring glenn ford and um William Holden that were made at Columbia all in color and those are some damn fine movies and I revisited a lot of the old uh, Randolph Scott westerns and the, the Jimmy Stewart westerns the Anthony Mann westerns those are just <clears <clears throat>
0: throat> yeah, I recently watched uh, for the first time Ride the High Country with Scott and Joel McCrae, and that is truly a great western.
1: I saw that as a kid and loved it and I've and been meaning to watch it here recently because it's on <clears> one of the streaming services but yeah I, I love that one and I think I think it was Joel McRae's last film, might have been Scott's. It was like the second film directed
0: by Sam Peckinpah. Just terrific stuff. So uh, if people want to de- uh, delve deep into Mad Helm movies, how do they find Booze, Bullets, and Broads?
1: Right now, it's only available as a Kindle book on Amazon. Uh, so you can go to Amazon and find it. And also, uh, the Wyatt Earp novel is up on Amazon called The Last Stage. Uh, but uh, I will be doing print versions of both of those, Booze, uh, Bullets, and Broads I hope to have out in the next four to six weeks. And um, I'm doing a little bit slower rollout on uh, the last stage, but that'll be uh, available to order as a print book by mid-October is what I'm shooting for.
0: Fabulous.
1: <clears throat>
0: Excuse me. <clears throat> We've been having a very spirited discussion with Bruce Civilly who's uh, written a book on the Mad Hell movies called Booze, Bullets, and Broads, as well as working on his novel about Wyatt Earp. Uh, it's been great having you on the show, Bruce. Uh, wish you great success with these books as they continue to find their audience, and thank you for being with us.
1: Well, thank you for inviting me on. This has been a blast. And I would highly recommend two things. Anyone who's not a big fan of classic westerns, go watch a few. You know, watch The Gunfighter with Gregory Peck. There's another good one. And uh, if you're going to watch the Matt Helm movies, have a couple of drinks first. So they'll they'll go down easier.
0: <laughs> Thank you, Bruce. Uh, everyone, you've been wa- you've been listening to Saturday Night at the Movies. I'm your host, Steve Rubin. We're on the Lock 22 Network. Our producer, as always is the very capable Ben Shrewsbury. See you next week.